0: Section 16 of Catherine de Medici by Honor de Balzac, translated by Catherine Prescott Warne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter 14, Catherine in Power. The day on which Theodore de Bèze and Chaudieu arrived in Paris, the court returned from Rheims, where Charles the Ninth was crowned. The ceremony which Catherine made magnificent with splendid fates enabled her to gather about her the leaders of the various parties. Having studied all interests and all factions, she found herself with two alternatives on which to choose, either to rally them all to the throne, or to pit them one against the other. The Connetable de Montmorency, supremely Catholic, whose nephew, the Prince de Cond, was leader of the Reformers, and whose sons were inclined to the new religion, blamed the alliance of the Queen Mother with the Reformation. The guises on the other side were endeavouring to gain over Antoine de Bourbon, king of Navarre, a weak prince, a manoeuvre which his wife, Jeanne d'Albret, instructed by de Bez, allowed to succeed. The difficulties were plain to Catherine, whose dawning power needed a period of tranquillity. She therefore impatiently awaited Calvin's reply to the message which the prince de Conde, the king of Navarre, Coligny d'Andelieu, and the Cardinal de Châtillon had sent them through de Bez and Chaudieu. Meantime, however, she was faithful to her promises as to the Prince de Comte. The Chancellor put an end to the proceedings in which Christophe was involved by referring the affair to the Parliament of Paris, which at once set aside the judgment of the committee, declaring it without power to try a Prince of the Blood. The Parliament then reopened the trial, at the request of the Guises, and the Queen Mother. Lasagna's papers had already been given to Catherine who burned them. The giving up of these papers was a first pledge, uselessly made by the Guises to the Queen Mother. The Parliament, no longer able to take cognizance of those decisive proofs, reinstated the Prince in all his rights, property and honours. Christophe, released during the tumult at Orléans on the death of the King, was acquitted in the first instance and appointed, in compensation for his sufferings, solicitor to the Parliament at the request of his godfather, Monsieur de Thu. Triumvirate, that coming coalition of self-interests threatened by Catherine's first acts, was now forming itself under her very eyes. Just as in chemistry antagonistic substances separate at the first shock which jars their enforced union, so in politics the alliance of opposing interests never lasts. Catherine thoroughly understood that sooner or later she should return to the Guises and combine with them on the Contable to do battle against the Huguenot. The proposed colloquy, which tempted the vanity of the orators of all parties, and offered an imposing spectacle to succeed that of the coronation and enliven the bloody ground of a religious war, which, in point of fact, had already begun, was as futile in the eyes of the Duke de Guise as in those of Catherine. The Catholics would, in one sense, be worsted, for the Huguenots, under pretext of conferring, would be able to proclaim their doctrine, the sanction of the king and his mother, to the ears of all France. Cardinal de Lorraine, flattered by Catherine into the idea of destroying the heresy by the eloquence of the Church, persuaded his brother to consent, and thus the Queen obtained what was all essential to her six months of peace a slight event occurring at this time came near compromising the power which catherine had so painfully built up the following scene preserved in history took place on the very day the envoys returned from geneva in the hôtel de Coligny near the louvre at his coronation charles the ninth who was greatly attached to his tutor amyot appointed him grande almonaire of france this affection was shared by his brother the duc d'anjou afterwards Henri III, another of Anjou's pupils. Catherine heard the news of this appointment from the two Gondis during the journey from Reims to Paris. She had counted on that office in the gift of the crown to gain a supporter in the church, with whom to oppose the Cardinal de Lorraine. Her choice had fallen on the Cardinal de Tournon, in whom she expected to find, as in l'hôpital, another crutch. The word is her own. As soon as she reached the Louvre, she sent for the tutor, and her anger was such on seeing the disaster to her policy caused by the ambition of this son of a shoemaker, that she was betrayed into using the following extraordinary language, which several memoirs of the day have handed down to us. What? She cried. Am I, who compel the Guises, the Colonies, the Cunetab, the House of Navarre, the Prince of Dicondes, to serve my ends, am I to be opposed by a priestling like you who are not satisfied to be bishop of azaire hamil excused himself he assured the queen that he had asked nothing the king of his own will had given him the office of which he the son of a poor tailor felt himself quite unworthy be assured Metor, replied catherine that being the name which the two kings charles the ninth and Henri the third gave to the great writer that you will not stand on your feet twenty four hours hence, unless you make your pupil change his mind. Between the death thus threatened and the resignation of the highest ecclesiastical office and the gift of the crown, the son of the shoemaker, who had lately become extremely eager after honors, and may even have coveted a cardinal's hat, thought it prudent to temporize. He left court and hid himself in the Abbey of Saint-Germain. When Charles the Ninth did not see him at his first dinner, he asked where he was. Some Giza doubtless told him of what had occurred between Amjor and the Queen Mother. Has he been forced to disappear because I made him condom there? cried the king. He thereupon rushed to his mother in the violent wrath of angry children when their caprices are opposed. Madame, he said on entering, did I not kindly sign the letter you asked me to send to Parliament, by means of which you govern my kingdom? Did you not promise that if I did so My will should be yours, and here the first favor that I wish to bestow excites your jealousy. The Chancellor talks of declaring my majority at fourteen, three years from now, and you wish to treat me as a child. By God, I will be king, and king as my father and grandfather were kings. The tone and manner in which these words were said gave Catherine a revelation of her son's true character. It was like a blow in the breast. He speaks to me thus, him who I made king, she thought. Monsieur, she said aloud, the office of a king. In times like these, is a very difficult one. You do not yet know the shrewd men with whom you have to deal. You will never have a safer and more sincere friend than your mother, or better servants than those who have been so long attached to her person, without whose services you might perhaps not even exist today the guises want both your life and your throne be sure of that if they could sew me into a sack and fling me to the river she said pointing to the sun it would be done to-night they know that i am a lioness defending her young and that i alone prevent their daring hands from seizing your crown to whom to whose party does your tutor belong who are his allies what authority has he what services he can do you What weight do his words carry? Instead of finding a prop to sustain your power, you have cut the ground from under it. The Cardinal de Laurent is a living threat to you. He plays the king. He keeps his hat on his head before the princes of the blood. It was urgently necessary to invest another Cardinal with powers greater than his one. But what have you done? Is Amiot that shoemaker fit only to tie the ribbons of his shoes? Is he capable of making head against the guise's ambition, however, you love am you have appointed him your will must now be done, monsieur, but before you make such gifts again, I pray you to consult me in affectionate good faith, listen to reasons of state and your own good sense as a child, and perhaps agree with my old experience when you really understand the difficulties that lie before you then i can have my master back again cried the king not listening to his mother's words which he considered to be mere reproaches yes you shall have him she replied but it is not here nor that brutal sipier who will teach you how to reign it is for you to do so my dear mother said the boy mollified by his victory and relaxing the surly and threatening look stamped by nature upon his countenance Catherine sent Gondi to recall the new Grand Ormonnaie. When the Italian discovered the place of Amiel's retreat, and the bishop heard that the courtier was sent by the queen, he was seized with terror and refused to leave the abbey. In this extremity Catherine was obliged to write to him herself, in such terms that he returned to Paris and received from her own lips the assurance of her protection, on condition, however, that he would blindly promote her wishes for Charles the Ninth. This little domestic tempest over, the queen, now re-established in the Louvre, after an absence of more than a year, held counsel with her closest friends as to the proper conduct to pursue with the young king, whom Scipio had complimented on his firmness. What is best to be done? she said to the two Gondis, Ruggiero, Viraggio, and Civerni, who had lately become governor and chancellor to the Duc d'Anjou. Before all else replied, Berago. Get rid of Sibierre. He is not a courtier. He will never accommodate himself to your ideas, and will think he does his duty in thwarting you. Whom can I trust? cried the queen. One of us, said Berago. On my honor, exclaimed Gondy, I'll promise you to make the king as docile as the king of Navarre. You allow the king to perish to save your other children. Alberto Gondi. Do then as the great seigneurs of Constantinople too. Divert the anger and amuse the caprices of the present king. He loves art and poetry and hunting. Also a little girl is at Orleans. There's occupation enough for him. Will you really be the king's governor? said Catherine to the ablest of the gondis Yes, if you will give me the necessary authority, you may even be obliged to make me Marshal of France and a Duke. Sibia is altogether too small a man to hold the office. The future of the governor of the King of France should be of some great dignity, like that of Duke or Marshal. He is right, said Baragun. Poet and huntsman, said Catherine in a dreamy tone. We will hunt and make love, cried Gondin. Moreover, remarked Caverni, you are sure of Amiot." will always fear poison in case of disobedience, so that you and he and Condi can hold the king in the leading strings. M. Yu has deeply offended me, said Catherine. He does not know what he owes to you. If he did know, you would be in danger, replied Birago, gravely emphasizing his words. Then it is agreed, exclaimed Catherine, on whom Birago's reply made a powerful impression that you gondi are to be the king's governor my son must consent to do for one of my friends a favour equal to the one i have just permitted for his knave of a bishop that fool has lost the hat for never as long as i live will i consent that the pope shall give it to him how strong he might have been with cardinal de tonneau what a trio with tonneau for grand almonaire and l'hôpital and de as for the burghers of Paris, I intend to make my son cajole them. We will get a separate. We will get a support there. Accordingly, Albert de Gondi became a marshal of France, and was created duc de Retz, and governor of the king a few days later. At the moment when this little private council ended, Cardinal de Tournon announced to the queen the arrival of the emissaries sent to Calvin. Admiral Coligny accompanied the party in order that his presence might ensure them due respect at the Louvre. Queen gathered the formidable phalanx of her maids of honour about her and passed into the reception hall built by her husband, which no longer exists in the Louvre of today. At the period of which we write the staircase of the Louvre, occupied the clock tower. Catherine's apartments were in the old buildings, which still exist in the court of the Musée. The present staircase of the museum was built in what was formerly the Salle des Ballets. The ballet of those days was a sort of dramatic entertainment performed by the whole court. Revolutionary passions gave rise to a most laughable error about Charles Ninth, in connection with the Louvre. During the revolution, hostile opinions as to this king, whose real character was masked, made a monster of him. Joseph Chenier tragedy was written under the influence of certain words scratched on the window of the projecting wing of the Louvre, looking toward the quay. The words were as follows. It was from this window that Charles the Ninth of execrable memory fired upon the French citizens. It is well to inform future historians and all sensible persons that this portion of the Louvre, called today the Old Louvre, which projects upon the quay and is connected with the Louvre by a room called the Apollo Gallery, while the great halls of the museum connect the Louvre with the Tuileries, did not exist in the time of Charles the The greater part of the space, where the frontage on the quay now stands, and where the garden of the Infanta is laid out, was then occupied by the Hôtel de Bourbon, which belonged to and was the residence of the House of Navarre. It was absolutely impossible, therefore, for Charles the IX to fire from the Louvre of Henry II upon a boat full of Huguenots, crossing the river, although at the present time the Seine can be seen from its windows. Even if learned men and libraries did not possess maps of the Louvre made in the time of Charles the on which it is then possible is clearly indicated, the building itself refutes the error. All the kings who cooperated in the work of erecting this enormous mass of buildings never failed to put their initials or some special monogram on the parts they had severally built. Now the part we speak of, the venerable and now blackened wing of the Louvre, projecting on the quay and overlooking the garden of the infanta, bears the monograms of Henri the Third and Henri the Fourth, which are totally different from that of Henri the Second, who invariably joined his H to the two C's of Catherine forming a D, which, by the by, has constantly deceived superficial persons into fancying that the king put the initial of his mistress Diane on great public buildings. Henri IV united the Louvre with his own Hôtel de Bourbon, its garden and dependencies. He was the first to think of connecting Catherine de Medici's Palace of the Tuileries with the Louvre by his unfinished galleries, the precious sculptures of which have been so cruelly neglected. Even if the map of Paris and the monograms of Henri III and Henri IV did not exist, the difference of architecture is reputation enough to calumniate. The vermiculated stone copings of the Hotel de la Fosse mark the transition between what is called the architecture of the Renaissance and that of Henri III, Henri IV, and Louis XIII. This archaeological digression, continuing the sketches of old Paris with which we began this history, enables us to picture to our minds the then appearance of this other corner of the old city, for which nothing now remains but only the fourth addition to the Louvre, which is admirable bas-reliefs now being rapidly annihilated. when the court heard that the Queen was about to give an audience to Theodore de Bes and Chaudieu presented by Admiral Coligny, all the courtiers who had the right of entrance to the reception hall hastened thither to, to witness the interview. It was about six o'clock in the evening. Coligny had just sucked and was using a toothpick, as he came up the staircase of the Louvre between the two reformers. The practice of using a toothpick was so inveterate a habit with the Admiral that he was seen to do it on the battlefield while planning a retreat. Distrust the Admiral's toothpick, the no of the connetable, and Catherine's yes was a court proverb of that day. After the Saint Bartholomew, the populace made a horrible jest on the body of Colony, which hung for three days by putting a grotesque toothpick into his mouth history has recorded this atrocious levity so petty an act done in the midst of that great catastrophe pictures of the parisian populace which deserves the sarcastic gibe of boileau frenchman born malin created the guillotine the parisian of all time cracks jokes and makes lampoons before during and after the most horrible Theodore de Bez wore the dress of a courtier, black silk stockings, low shoes with straps across the instep, tight breeches, a black silk doublet with slashed sleeves, and a small black velvet mantle, over which lay an elegant white fluted ruff. His beard was trimmed to a moustache and of a beauty really knackled imperial, and he carried a sword at his side and a cane in his hand. Whosoever knows the galleries of Versailles? Of the collections of Odieuvre, knows also his round, almost jovial face and lively eyes, surmounted by the broad forehead which characterized the writers and poets of that day. De Bez had what served him admirably, an agreeable air and manner. In this he was a great contrast to Coligny, of austere countenance, and to the sour, bilious Chaudieu, who chose to wear on this occasion the robe and bands of Calvin's minister the scenes that happen in our day in the chamber of deputies which no doubt happen in the convention will give an idea of how this court this epoch these men who six months later were to fight to the death in a war without quarter could meet and talk to each other with courtesy and even laughter Birago, who was coldly to advise the Comte de la and cardinal de la charged his servant Besme not to miss the admiral now advanced to meet Coligny, but rather, saying with a smile, "Well, my dear Admiral, so you have really taken upon yourself to present these gentlemen from Geneva. Perhaps you will call it a crime in me," replied the Admiral, jesting. Whereas if you had done it yourself, you would make a merit of it. They say that the Sir Calvin is very ill," remarked the Cardinal de Lorraine to Theodore de Bèze. I hope no one suspects us of giving him his broth. Now, nah, Monsieur, it would be too great a risk," replied Debes maliciously. The Duc de Guise, who was watching Chaudieu, looked fixedly at his brother, and Berago, who both were both taken aback by de Bez's answer. "Good God!" remarked the Cardinal. "Heretics are not diplomatic." to avoid embarrassment the queen who was announced at this moment had arranged to remain standing during the audience she began by speaking to the connetab who had previously remonstrated with her vehemently on the scandal of the receiving messages from calvin you see my dear connetab she said they receive them without ceremony madame said the admiral approaching the queen these are two teachers of the new religion who have come to an understanding with Galvin, and who have his instructions as to conference on which the churches of France may be able to settle the differences. This is a Monsieur de Bez to whom my wife is much attached, said the King of Navarre, coming forward and taking de Bess by the hand. And this is Chaudiot, said the Prince de Conde. My friend, the Duke de Guise, knows the soldier, he added, looking at Le Balfray. Perhaps you will now like to know the minister. The gasconade made the whole court laugh, even Catherine. Faith, replied the duke de Guise, I am enchanted to see a girl know so well how to choose his men and to employ them to the right sphere. One of your agents, he said to Chaudieu, actually endured the extraordinary question without dying and without confessing a single thing. I call myself brave. I don't know that I could have endured it as he did, Hm, muttered Humbert. you did not say a word when I pulled the javelin out of your face at Calais!' Catherine standing at the centre of the semicircle of the courtiers and maids of honour kept silence. She was observing the two reformers trying to penetrate their minds as with the shrewd intelligent glance of her black eye as she studied them. One seems to be discovered, the other is a blade, whispered Albert de Gondi in her ear. Well, gentlemen, said Catherine at last, unable to restrain a smile, has your master given you permission to unite in a public conference, in which you will be converted by the arguments of the fathers of the church, who are the glory of our state? We have no master but the Lord, said Chaudieu. But surely you will allow some little authority to the King of France, said Catherine, smiling. And much to the Queen, said the bears, bowing low you will find continued the queen that our most submissive subjects are heretics ah madame cried coligny we will indeed endeavor to make you a noble and peaceful kingdom europe has profited alas by our internal divisions for the last fifty years she has had the advantage of one half of the french people being against the other half are we to sing anthems to the glory of heretics said the brutally. "'No, but to bring them to repentance,' whispered the Cardinal de Lorraine in his ear. "'We want to coax them by a little sugar.' "'Do you know what I should have done under the late king?' said the connoitable angrily. "'I'd have called in the Provost to hung these two knaves, then and there, on the gallows of the Louvre. "'Well, gentlemen, who are the learned men whom you have selected as our opponents?' inquired the Queen." imposing silence on the connoitre by a look Depressis, Monet, and Tréodore de Bez will speak on our side, replied Chaudieu. The court will doubtless go to Saint-Germain, and as it would be improper that this colloquy should take place in a royal residence, we will have it in the little town of Poissy, said Catherine Shall we be safe there, madame? Ah, replied the queen with a sort of naivety Will surely know how to take precautions. The Admiral will arrange all that with my cousins, the Guises and the Montmorency. The devil will take them, cried the Connetable. I'll have nothing to do with them. How do you contrive to give such strength of character to your converts? said the queen, leading Chaudieu apart. The son of my furrier was actually sublime. We have faith, replied Chaudieu. At this moment, the hall presented a scene of animated groups, all discussing the question of the proposed assembly, to which the few words said by the Queen had already given the name of the colour group, Poissy. Catherine glanced at Chaudieu and was able to say to him, unheard, Yes, a new faith. Oh, madame, if you were not blinded by our alliance with the court of Rome, you would see that we are returning to the true doctrines of Jesus Christ who, recognising the equality of souls, bestows upon all men equal rights on earth. "'Do you think yourself the equal of Calvin? asked the Queen, shrewdly. "'No, no. We are equals only in church.' "'What, would you unbind the tie of the people to the throne?' she cried. "'Then you are not only heretics. You are the revolutionists, rebels against obedience to the King, as you are against that to the Pope.' So saying, she left Chaudieu abruptly and returned to Theodore de Bez. "I count on you, monsieur," she said, "to conduct this colloquy in good faith. Take all the time you need." "I had supposed," said Chaudieu to the prince de conde, the king of Navarre, and the admiral Coligny as they left the hall, "that the greatest state matter would be treated more seriously." "Oh, you know very well what you want," exclaimed the prince de conde exchanging a sly look with Théodore de Bez. The prince now left his adherents to attend a rendezvous. This great leader of a party was also one of the most favoured gallants of the court. The two choice beauties of that day were even then striving with such desperate eagerness for his affections that one of them, the Margal de Saint-André, the wife of the future Ranvier, gave him her beautiful estate of Saint-Varavie, hoping to win him away from the Duchess de Guise. The wife of the man who tried to take his head on the scaffold. The duchess, not being able to detach the Duc de Nemours from Mademoiselle de Rohan, fell in love, en attendant, with the leader of the reformers. What a contrast to Geneva, said Chaudieu de terre de Bez as they crossed the little bridge of the Louvre. The people here are certainly gayer than the Genovese. I don't see why they should be so treacherous, replied de Bez. To treachery, oppose treachery replied Chaudier whispering the words of his companion, I have saints in Paris on whom I rely, I intend to make Calvin a prophet. Christophe Le camus shall relieve us from our most dangerous. The queen-mother for whom the poor devil endured this torture has already with a high hand caused him to be appointed, and solicitors make better prosecutors than murderers. Don't you remember how Avenel betrayed the secrets of our Christophe. I know, Christophe," said so Chaudieu in a positive tone, as he turned away to leave the envoy from Geneva. End of section 16.